Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about four rhythms that help you reduce stress and anxiety and take charge of your emotional health. Rest, restore, connect, create. These ideas come from Rebecca's best-selling book, Rhythms of Renewal, trading stress and anxiety for a life of peace and purpose. So grab your copy, invite your friends, and let's live in rhythm. Welcome back. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gabe. Merry Christmas, everyone. I know. It's that time of year. It's awesome. Feeling festive. Yes, we are. We put our Christmas tree up really early. We did. We did. We're We're just loving it right now. I know. I am not burned out whatsoever. I could definitely go into January. You've been falling asleep on the couch in the living room a lot. I know. I I feel like you're you're feeling the letdown of a crazy year. I know everybody listening, same thing. It's just been a heck of a year. So I think when we get to a point like this, it's a lot of gratefulness, trying Mm -hmm. to spend time with our families, those we love, and trying to be joyful. I know. Cozy comfort is my theme for December. I even got these Barefoot Dreams socks. It's like your foot is wearing a robe (laughs) (laughs) from a good friend. She's just like, this is her favorite thing. And when I opened it, my head almost exploded. I just didn't know it was possible. You're loving those socks. Yeah. And like for a couple of days, I couldn't find them. And I was on the hunt. Like who <laughs> took my socks? Where are my socks? They were just in the laundry room. It was fine. Well, as we head into this holiday, we're excited. We're taking some time off. We're doing our own take inventory, practicing yes, we what are. we preach, reflecting on this year. We'd encourage everybody listening. This is such a good season. It's always been one of those seasons in our life where we've taken time, even when we were working in different types of full-time careers, I remember just those few days between Christmas and New Year's always being the time to reflect and sort of set the goals for 2021. Yeah, setting that intention. We did this before kids. I mean, we were just like this. Even when we first got married, college kids, it was like, if you don't set intention around the new year, when will you, right? You've got to look back and reflect what worked, what didn't, before you even know how to move forward and look ahead. Yeah, I used to create these personal growth plans. Yes, you did. (laughs) This was back when things were on cassette tapes. That's how (laughs) old I am. And I remember laying out the cassette tapes I was going to listen to for learning and books and which books I was going to read and what categories. I actually don't do it that way anymore. Well, you worked for John Maxwell. I mean, you were all about personal growth, and he obviously created that culture in his company. And I think it it really got us on the trajectory of thinking that way in our 20s, right out of college when you were still called a young buck. I know. It was fun to to learn, which our episode today, we're going to get into some of our own fascination with learning, with Mm -hmm. thinking well, with taking in lots of different voices that help us. And so we'll share with you where this episode is going in a moment. But I also want to just encourage you, when you're in this season where you're taking inventory, you're looking at the year ahead, we want to encourage you, this Rhythms for Life planner and journal, 90 Days to Peace and Purpose, is just going to be your best friend, helping you walk through designing January, February, March. I mean, kicking off the year right, I think this year, with intention is one of the most important things you can do. And that is designed where Rebecca just walks you through her own journey of creating this whole plan to implement these rhythms in your daily life. Yeah. So if you give yourself the gift of rhythms this Christmas with this planner, it will actually invite you into taking inventory immediately. That's the very first step of the planner. It's a quarterly planner. So every quarter, 
taking inventory is essential every season, essentially. And so I believe that that week between, if you give it to yourself for Christmas or someone you love, then you have that week between Christmas and New Year to take inventory and then set a plan and work the plan for January. Because again, we've said this before, only 20% of people who create resolutions keep them. But rhythms are just a way of acting. Transformation happens one small step at a time. Yeah. New Year's rhythms should be your thing. Yeah. Not New Year's resolutions. And I mean, some of the things that the planner will help you do is come up with your morning and evening routines and the prompts that will help you make sure you start your day well, a customizable weekly plan to maintain your emotional, spiritual, mental health. You'll have all kinds of examples of our favorite rhythms. There's over 120 different activities and prompts. rhythms that you choose the ones that you love or add to the list, but it you don't have to come up with all of this on your own. It'll just remind you of some of those things you love. You can evaluate how you're doing every week on the weekend. So there's great space for journaling, which is one of Rebecca's favorite things to do. Every day you can journal the things and just get get your mind going towards this renewal mindset. Yeah, some people are planners, some are journalers. I happen to be both, and I do think that's operating both the right and the left side of the brain together so that that as you're being actionable and taking, you know, taking charge of your emotional health, you're also reflecting and being honest with what's working. And so you can get the journal at rebeccalyons.com. You can also get many other gifts that are there, but at rebeccalyons.com/planner you can learn all about the planner specifically and how that can be a great gift for you, for a child, for just one of your friends, maybe your parents, but a great book. It's beautiful sitting there on that coffee table or your journal nightstand. Obviously, it's available wherever books are sold. If you're looking to get it quickly, I'm sure Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, ChristianBook.com, all those things. So Now, as we head into today's episode, you know, there's another part of Rebecca and I's life, and that is something called Q Ideas. Yes. And we don't talk a ton about that in this podcast format, but it's been so integral to our lives over the last 20 years. Yeah, it's something we founded long, long ago when we were babies, it feels like. (laughs) So when we first started having babies, actually, and it was all about how culture and faith and thoughtfulness comes together. And so we convene people around around the country and now mostly in Nashville and also virtually, but it's leaders um, on the front lines of culture in arts or media or government, policy, education, social sector, who love God and are trying to affect change in their communities. And so we're so passionate about it. You have heard us talk about it a few times, like Gabe said, but we have the best of Q moments that we are so excited to introduce you to or share with you. These are big thinking topics of the tensions of our time, which of course 2020 had many of those, and how to think faithfully. What does faithfulness look like when culture sometimes feels like it's spinning out? And so that's what today is going to be about. Yeah, we're going to take a few of our favorite moments, we'll set them up, and then you can listen to from the voice themselves for a couple of minutes and just hear that thought as you go into the end of this year and we reflect and we all try to prepare for the year ahead. We hope it can be inspiring and encouraging as you listen with us to some of our favorite moments of 2020. So for our first Q moment, we are featuring Priscilla Shire, Confidence in a Season of Crisis is the name of her talk. And this pandemic obviously is something that none of us could have seen coming a year ago, but for all of us, it's disrupted and changed so much of our lives. 
And so the one key question that we keep asking or hearing this year was simply, what is our role as Christians in the midst of this cultural chaos? And I don't think there's someone who could speak more clearly to this or eloquently or inspiring than Priscilla Shire. So let's listen in now. Everything that happens in our lives personally or on a global level like this, everything, um, whether it might not have been orchestrated by God, it will be used by God. If we allow him to, he will actually use us as well as instruments during that time. So the same can be true about the enemy as well, though. The enemy will try to use everything that he can to turn it into a scheme or a tactic to discourage God's people, to dissuade them, to make they make them feel like they're defeated, even though we already have, have the victory. So we have to then choose, are we going to operate like victors or are we going to operate like the victims that the enemy wants to use this situation to make us feel that we are? So again, it goes back to the truth of scripture, that my salvation, what it did for me was not just give me a ticket to eternity. What it did was actually totally change my identity while I'm standing right here in time and history. That means no matter pandemic or not. I am who God says I am, and I have access to every spiritual blessing that he um, has given me the privilege to access in the authority of his name. So I got I to choose. Am I going to let fear run my life, or am I going to let the hope that comes from the position I have in Jesus run my life? As a mom, it means that the practical way I make decisions today when I'm making this decision for my sons, when Jerry and I are considering the direction for our ministry in the next few months, do we make choices out of fear, out of anxiety, out of insecurity about the future? Or do we say, wait a minute, that's not who we are. That's not what is wired into my spiritual DNA. So I'm not going to let the enemy use this as a scheme to now make me start making decisions out of that place. I'm a victor. I have access to all the authority and power of God. What kind of decision does that girl make? And then make those choices and decisions, whether I feel like it or not, I've got to stand on the side of victory and operate through that lens. I love where she says that no matter what, I'm, I am who God says I am. I have access to every spiritual blessing he has given me, the privilege to access in the authority of his name. So I got to choose. I like that she says we get to choose. Yeah, and, and I think her focus to just push off fear, which fear this year really showed up. Mm-hmm. You know, if if somebody was experiencing fear before this year, I mean, this year just would have catapulted it to top of mind, started to drive a lot of decisions. We saw it in our government leaders. We saw it in the media. We still see it where mm-hmm. it's just constant putting in front of us fear of death, fear of getting sick, fear of of contacting, you know, somebody that might have a disease. I mean, there's just constant fear. And what she's saying is we can't live that way. We have a different authority, and that's where we start. And as Christians, that's what we believe. And so as we move into the new year, we cannot let fear be a driver. Now, the next moment was from Andy Crouch, somebody who's been a part of this world for so many years in, in the Q family, and he gave a talk called The Year With No Summer. And he was referencing this past summer, but at a bigger level was referencing the dynamics are changing and maybe what's happening right now isn't going to just be for a few weeks or a few months. What if we're moving into a winter? What if we're moving into a season that's going to be a bigger transformational shift in how our society functions? And he accurately was predicting what I think many of us are now seeing come true. And so in this moment, he speaks to that. He speaks to, could there be a gift in the way we're now having to think small? And how things are getting smaller, whether it's our dinner table, maybe it's our relationships, maybe it's being more local than so international and how we think or travel. 
All of those facets are now weighing in on all of us. And let's listen in to his encouragement about how we can appreciate what can happen when we think small. The amazing gift of exile is that you discover a very unexpected answer to that lament of Psalm 137, which is that you can sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, even as you have to make unthinkable adjustments. The rabbis had to ask, after the temple was defiled and destroyed, we can no longer gather in the temple and know that the presence of God is there. We can no longer be there and thousands of the all the clans and families of Israel join together in worship. What's the minimum number? Like, how few Jews do there have to be to be able to trust that God is present? And they came up with this rabbinic number called dominion. Ten is the number. The belief that if just ten could gather to pray, God would be there. We are going to be living with small numbers for quite a while because they emerge from the kind of mathematics of viral transmission. Limits as low as 10, maybe 50, maybe 100. The crazy thing is these numbers, which are public health policy numbers, are also in our Jewish and Christian story. The feeding of the 5,000, one of the big events of the Gospels, 5,000 men plus women and children, says Mark. And Mark adds this detail that Jesus had the disciples arrange them in groups of 50 and 100. Jesus actually doubles, uh, doubles down or reduces the minion. Uh, the rabbi said 10, but he says, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, I will be present in the midst of them. And even at Pentecost, uh, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, the birthday of the church, there's only 120 people in the room, slightly over probably social distancing guidelines, but a very small number. Why? Why are small numbers such a big part of God's story? I think it's because of a sociological axiom, which is that the only way to change culture is through an absolutely small group of people. Large groups can preserve culture, large groups can transmit culture, but if you want to change culture, you have to think small. And so the question becomes, why are we here? Are we here for cultural preservation? Preserving a way of life, preserving a certain standard of living? If so, we should be terrified at this moment. Or are we here for cultural transformation? To bring a deep change in the world? If so, we should be energized because we have everything that we need. Wasn't that great? I love Andy. I mean, he just brings it every single time um, when he says, why are small numbers such a big part of God's story? because of a sociological axiom, which is that the only way to change culture is through an absolutely small group of people. We never think that way innately, like, but when we do it, we realize that's absolutely fundamentally true. Yeah, I know for me, that's been such an encouragement this year locally, a small group of men, part of a Bible study, community conversations every week. And it has been more invigorating to me than national things that we do through Q or other things. Because it's so real, it's so tangible, and it's all part of, I think, again, when you look at God's design, small things can have an incredible transformational impact. Yeah, that that concept is just kind of mind-blowing, that large groups of people preserve culture, but small groups of people create culture. I mean, that that should be an actionable inspiration for all of us. You don't have to have a whole bunch of people to affect change. The next cue moment is with Micah Edmondson, and this is all about racial injustice being a gospel issue. And as we know, this year, that elevated to the, the top of the list on topics that we uh, wanted to engage as a community that you guys were engaging in your own homes. So a thing that, because this became such a huge part of our cultural conversation, we wanted to invite Micah Edmondson to 
frame this conversation um, all around what is this going to look like as a gospel issue in the church. So let's listen in now. I think the major pastoral issue that I'm facing around issues of race. So race has such a huge impact on us all in the American context, right? It shapes so much. Um, But I think for the church, we have a unique calling uh, to recognize that racial injustice is a gospel issue that the gospel has come to heal. And that's that's a big thing. That sounds like a basic statement, but it has a lot of implications. Right. So I think that's the major thing. That, that's, that's, my, that's my main thing. While that was a short moment, it was part of a much bigger conversation between him, David Bailey, Rasul Berry, John Tyson, all about where do we go in the church related to race? There's so many disagreements, different philosophies, ethics, and there's a lot of debate right now, but how do we sit at tables together and start with that basic premise that he said that this is a gospel issue and the gospel has come to heal? And as we continue into the next moment, we continue along this theme. We had Trillia Newbell, who was a part of our race and repair Q session we did this summer. We had 10 different presenters come together for two hours, all deliver nine-minute talks and interviews around this really important topic about how do we move forward? How can the church lead the way forward and what it looks like to understand this topic, but also understand what restoration looks like. What does repair look like? And so Trillia, who wrote a children's book to help parents better understand how they can have these conversations with our kids, really launches in and helps us get new perspective on how we can lead in the education around this topic. I want to start by saying some people don't talk about it because they're racist themselves. Yeah. And that, I think, is one of the things we have to ask ourselves. And you may not be racist. You may be apathetic. Yeah. You may be, see it as their problem, not my problem. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to ask ourselves, who's going to teach our kids? Mm-hmm. Will the culture or will we? And then we have to ask ourselves, where in our own hearts must we change? Because they do. It is learned yeah. in a lot of ways that... And, and so we, we have to repent ourselves mm-hmm. of our biases, of our assumptions, of the evil that is in our own hearts before mm-hmm. we can even teach our children. Yeah. So start with yourself, yeah. interrogating our own hearts, and then go to our kids. And one misconception, I think, is, is that it is a political issue. Yeah. It is a political issue. Mm-hmm. Policies, with if we don't have changed policies, in, in the United States specifically— well, I wouldn't be sitting here, right? Mm-hmm. So we do need to address those policy issues, but it's also a biblical issue. Yeah. We see God created every person in his image. Mm-hmm. And we see that he's given us a beautiful multi-ethnic mission to go and make disciples of all nations. And as was already talked about, Ephesians 2, the veil mm-hmm. of hostility has been broken down in the body of Jesus Christ. We will one day forever be worshiping mm-hmm. together. We have a better word in the scriptures. Yeah. And so I want us to rescue it from the culture and rescue it from politics because we speak a better word, those who know Jesus. Mm. So political, we, we can yep. think it's political and it can hinder us from speaking to it. I think another thing is, is that we don't think our kids will understand. Mm. And as I've already mentioned, um, Kids will understand. They they yeah. will know. They see. They right. see. They're not as naive as we tend to oh, hope not, that they are. Not at all. And as a matter of fact, um, they're going to learn. So they're either going to learn 
on the street. They're going to learn in their classroom. They're going to learn somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be the ones that are educating and, and, and helping our kids to understand about culture and differences. I am so thankful that Trillia tackled this topic of how and why to talk to your kids about race. Uh, one of the highlights that she said um, just rings in my ear. She says, kids are going to learn. So they're either going to learn on the street or they're going to learn in their classroom or they're going to learn somewhere. And so we want to be the ones that are educating and helping our kids to understand about culture and about differences. So we really do, as parents, have to take that responsibility and that agency. We've got to keep asking ourselves who's going to teach our kids? Will it be the culture or will it be us? Right. And that's how you break generational racism. And that's really what she continued to talk about after that moment. And that leads us into this next moment. Francis Chan was with us a couple of times this year, just giving his prophetic voice to a moment where, you know, Rebecca, so many churches and people even listen to this, it has been a weird year Mm -hmm. for the church, right? Churches not meeting, churches meeting in different ways, people gathering outside, People having to really rethink, what is the church? And, you know, Francis last year wrote this book called Letters to the Church, and he was really laying out this prophetic vision for what is the true church. And I don't think it could have come at a more timely moment to help people start to think through, what is it going to mean to be the church? And here in this moment, he really lays out why any believer is probably thrilled right now to be rethinking the church. I love the season we are in. And I think every true believer does because we we look at, you know, kind of the status quo and how we're, uh, we're just hoping for a time when we were forced into action. It's it's almost like you're you're training, training, training for something. And here it is. Are we prepared or not? And it's, it's a time where I kind of look at it like the Israelites when they're in the desert. And there are those who are like, oh, I just want to get back to Egypt, you know, back to the way it was, where I knew what was going to happen tomorrow. And I'm going, man, you're missing out. You're being led by a ball of fire. Never in history has that happened. Never will it happen again. Don't miss this. Right now, look, bread came from heaven. Are you kidding me? Don't miss this. Don't be thinking, oh, I wish we could go back. I wish I'm like, God has not put us in a situation where we can't be deeply, deeply intimate with him and growing with one another. Man, don't miss this. I I think about parents. I hear a lot of churches, they got to meet together again because of our kids. And I'm going, man, that should wake you up right there. Parents are supposed to be teaching their kids. This is a great opportunity for you dads to step up and believe the spirit of the living God is inside of your body and you can lead that family. And if you're not equipped, then figure it out and and, and man up. And, and parents, you're supposed to lead your kids, but I feel like we've, we've weakened all these gifted godly people because we do everything for them. We'll teach your kids. And so now it's just kind of chaotic of what do we do? You don't know one's teaching my kid. It's like, no, take advantage of this time. I really believe this is of God. This is a time where we realized we were not ready for this. So if we get another little break, let's do everything we can to equip and prepare people for times like this. Because I really don't believe this is the end of it. And we're going to figure it out. And it's the last pandemic and everything's going to go back to normal. 
I highly, highly doubt that. The thing I love most about Francis is his energy. I mean, you cannot listen to him for more than like 10 seconds and you kind of want to run a lap around the room. (laughs) He just has that contagious uh, demeanor, which is why when he gave this title, the joy of this season for Christians, most people weren't leading with that, you know, especially for 2020. Hey, there's so much joy in this season, but really what he's painting a picture of is that because this season is not status quo, we're actually, we've been preparing and planning and training and hoping for a time where we were forced into action. And this is that year. This is almost like where the rubber meets the road. Are we ready for it? Are we equipped? Are we equipped to stand boldly or lead with confidence? Is our faith fortified enough to handle something that we've been training for? And and then now it's here. And are we prepared or not? I love that call and that that urgency that he leads with. And I hope um, you go and listen to more of this um, conversation with him because it's so inspiring and it will definitely get you going. Friends, this Christmas season, I want to share a cause with you that's near to my heart. Through the years, you may have heard me talk about my trip to Rwanda and the amazing work that African New Life is doing. With all the holiday busyness around us, it can be easy to take little things for granted, Little things like food, but in the nation of Rwanda, that's never the case for most families. Though the country has made incredible strides towards healing, reconciliation, and development since the horrible 1994 genocide, there are still too many parents wondering if they'll be able to feed their children anything from one day to the next. But Africa New Life Ministries is helping change that. Amina, a mother of seven children in rural Rwanda, shares, It's hard for us to get food, and the part-time jobs I was doing before had stopped as well. But food from Africa New Life came as a witness to how God is providing for us because we had no food that day. You can help provide meals for Amina's children and for students across Rwanda with a monthly gift to Africa New Life's food program. $25 provides 30 meals. What an incredible and life-changing Christmas gift. Visit africanewlife.org slash RFL podcast to give nutrition, stability, and hope this winter. That's africanewlife.org slash RFL podcast. But one one of our other favorite moments just took place a few weeks ago. We hosted our Q&A session. We had over eight topics. We spent an hour and a half on each of these topics, and one of them was on progressive Christianity or deconstruction. And we had John Mark Homer, who's a pastor out of Portland, come and spend time with us, as well as Roberta Amundsen uh, join us, who really understands the history of the church. And in this moment, which has gotten a ton of views, this has been spread around, probably over a million people have now watched or shared this particular clip. So we wanted to bring it to you here, but encourage you to watch the entire talk on Q Media, because it's one of those that once you watch it, you're going to want to share it with everybody, because it starts to pull the veil back on so much of the deception that has happened in the church where people are being taught that they can kind of dismiss some old things about Scripture or the Bible that are inconvenient to be faced with at this moment. And John Mark Homer takes that head on and tries to explain why there's this temptation to deconstruct. So let's listen now. When people deconstruct, most of the time, there's something there that needs to be deconstructed. So there's a, there's a type of deconstruction that is where, you know, people critique kind of the culture of the church based on the Bible. And this is what Jesus did. Like Jesus did this. This is Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, right? You've, you've heard it said, you know, love, you know, your neighbor, but hate your enemies. 
That hate your enemies part isn't in the text. You've added that on with your nationalism and your anger and your fear. And so Jesus is deconstructing church norms in his day with the Bible, saying, you think this is, you Christians or you, you know, church people think this, this is what scripture says. This is the deconstruction of the Old Testament prophets before Jesus. It's the deconstruction of Martin Luther and Zwigli and Calvin and the reformers. It's the deconstruction of, like, there's a, so there's a healthy part of deconstruction where basically the world has corrupted the church and people take the Bible to critique the worldliness of the church. But what we're living through right now is where people take the world and they use kind of the culture of the world to critique the Bible. So it's a backwards kind of thing. So people come to the Bible, come to the way of Jesus with prior moral assumptions where they have Genesis 3, redefined good and evil, whether it's around sexuality or any number of issues, for themselves, and then scripture doesn't line up or the tradition of the church doesn't line up, and so then it's deconstructed. John Mark was so poignant in how he addressed this. I wanted to replay it several times when I was in the room and he said it. I just, I was like frantically trying to write it down. But the concept here is that even um, when deconstruction is needed, it's because it's needed. On some level, Jesus did that himself and how he questioned things with the actual text. But that healthy part of deconstruction is where um, the world has corrupted the church. People use the Bible to critique the worldliness of the church. But what is happening today, specifically in 2020, and the uniqueness of this, is now the world is using the culture of the world to now critique the Bible. That's the inverse of what Jesus did. That's the inverse of what deconstruction has ever looked like. And that, to me, was a distinction that was very clear. We don't reorder the Bible to look like the world. We address the world with the unfallible, unchanging truth that is Scripture. Yeah, and as we continue on, I mean, the next moment you're going to want to take notes on, because this was one of those moments at Q that was a little bit of a Tim Keller, drop the mic, had laid out some critical information that was very clarifying, just like this last clip from John Mark Comer. Uh, and it's as we were talking with Tim Keller earlier this year, it was around how do we understand our current moment, kind of 21st century Christianity, and understand it in light of historically how the church progressed. There's so much division happening in the church. What makes the church unique? What makes us a counterculture? And he lays out these five points that you're going to get to hear right now that really clarified how the church always has functioned in any society, whether it was in a minority or a majority. When the church is being faithful, these five elements are present. And then he questioned, how are we doing at this today? So let's listen now. I got this from Larry Hurtado's book um, on Destroyer of the Gods, just to, just to, a cite, is the early Christians, their, their social project, meaning their community, was marked by five things. Think about them. It was multi-ethnic, and he makes the case it was really the first multi-ethnic religion, so it was very big on racial justice and, and uh, racial uh, equality. It was also very oriented to the poor, very much caring for the poor. So let's call that economic justice, racial justice, economic justice. Thirdly, it was uh, conciliatory. That is, if you if you kill the Christian, they didn't come and kill you. Uh, so it was bridge building, forgiving, willing to talk. Fourth, it was pro-life. I put it this way. Uh, it was against infanticide and abortion. And they would go take babies who were thrown out and they would come bring them back and adopt them. And lastly, it believed that sex was only between a man and a woman in marriage. So it was a sexual counterculture. It was pro-life. It was civil and uh, open to peacemaking and bridge building. It was for economic justice and racial justice. Now, look at those five things. 
It was category defying now, and it is now then. The first two, race and economic justice, sounds Democrat. The last two, uh, pro-life and um, traditional sexuality, sounds Republican. And the middle one, civility, doesn't sound like either Democrats or Republicans right now. And if you if you look at those five things, that just breaks the categories. And right now, the big danger is that Republican-leading conservative-type evangelicals put a lot of emphasis on the pro-life and traditional sexuality, and they're afraid of talking too much about the trouble of racism and the problems of poverty and inequality because it sounds too liberal. So they're actually being seduced by the culture to back away from things that were traditionally a biblical uh, emphasis. And the same thing the other way around. You've got a blue evangelicalism and a red evangelicalism. A lot of younger evangelicals want to talk about race and justice all the time, but they're afraid of talking about abortion, homosexuality, because they don't want to look like bigots. The reality is the, the Bible does not fit into our, our partisan divisions. Isn't that remarkable? Just five things that define the early church, a sexual counterculture, pro-life, civil, open to peacemaking and bridge building for economic justice and racial justice. Wow. Um, looking at that then, running that through the lens of what we have today is very inspiring. It's It's something that I would definitely encourage you continue to listen to more of this conversation because that is a litmus test of history. That's partly of what the goal of this is to do when you stay curious and think, well, you look back. You look back on the foundations and how things were established and where we are now as a result of going a bunch of different directions that are wayward from that. It's so important. We appreciate history and we take the time to learn it or relearn it. I feel like this year there's been a lot of that. It's been re-remembering who we were. Mm-hmm. Who is the church? What has the church always been? It, it, it's been easy, I think, over the last few decades, at least for our generation, to get caught up in like this new modern world, this new modern America, or this this progress forward, and in some ways get drunk on that, thinking everything's going to become new, everything we're doing is evolving. And I think this year's been a great reminder to reset to go back to the basics. Right. We think in our generation it's new because we have a very short life we've lived. And we realize, no, it's just repeating itself um, with the people that came before us and before them and before them. And then you get reminded, like, we're actually a very small, like, slice of the story. Our narrative that we've created in our moment is very small, and it's much better to be anchoring to something much larger than our lifetime. Yeah, and I love the reminder for our final moment because it was one of those encouraging reminders from history about, okay, how has the church always worked? How does the church function during these times? Where Where is our source? And Christine Kane was with us and John Tyson talking about one of your favorite topics. Revival. Prayer and revival. Yes. Both of these people I have massive respect for. Their lives have been preachers of revival, prayers for revival, um, just revivalists, I think. And you hear that word thrown around, and you don't really have language for what that means, but it is an awakening. It's a quickening of the Holy Spirit and the power and authority that comes from that. And so I love the way they unpack that in a very pragmatic way in this clip. So let's listen in now. I thought that was normal. I thought that's what everyone did, that you would go to the prayer meeting at 6 o'clock in the morning, and that's where you get your download from heaven. Everyone would be praying. I thought this is what every Christian did. You prayed, you prophesied, God gave you a download, you got favour, then you went out and did awesome works in the power of the Holy Ghost and let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works. The result of that is that it glorifies your Father in heaven. I thought that was the normal Christian life, and then I met Christians. And then it's like, oh... 
oh, like, you don't pray like that? You don't, like, that's not. Um, you, and then I learned, like, oh, no, you go to seminary for five years to learn how to. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay. And so then you've got to learn all these big words. And then you've got to learn. Um, and then I thought, I'm just like got a Beyonce fake Christianity for the masses. Like, I don't know. You go into the prayer closet, you get God, and you you get God. And people are like, what do you mean you get God? And I go, you lay a hold of God and you stir yourself up in your most holy faith and you begin to pray and God shows you things. And I, I don't know how else to say to you. You know, we see A21 today. Well, it all started the work I did with Hills District Youth Service in Sydney, Australia. Literally, in my prayer life, God would show me, go to this business and ask them for this. Go to this person. Go, And I got things. And people go, man, how have you built this big thing around the world? And I'm like, God, I pray. And like, uh, and you know, yes, is this Christine, there's systems and there's structures and there's mm. best practices. Yes, 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 yes. We've implemented all of those things. That is so secondary in my life. Um, people go, have you built a brand? I haven't built a brand. I die daily, crucify my flesh, take up my cross and follow him and get in a prayer closet and get instructions from God. Man, we got a whole generation that knows how to market themselves, but they're not marked. If you are not marked oh. by God oh. in the prayer closet, you are never going to see God open doors. You either believe the promotion doesn't come from the north, south, east or west. It comes from God and God opens doors that no man can shut and you get that in a prayer room with the Holy Ghost. That's where you'll get it. Yes. I believe this stuff. Let me say something interesting. You say something interesting. I think part of this is... It's like just redefining normal Christianity. So we're from sort of like sister churches in Australia and it was totally normal. Multiple hour morning prayer meetings, half nights of prayer. You literally walk up and down the, the pews like, send them Lord from the north, the south, the east, the west. Totally normal. And people say today, when you look around the world, why have a, there's a certain little group of Aussies that have all popped up around the world, literally in cities, and they say, like, what happened there? And a lot of that, honestly, can be traced back to the same group of meetings that were birthed in prayer. The prayers I prayed in those prayer closets with my most sincere faith at 19 years of age are being manifest in the streets of New York City now in a crisis. And so I think we've got to find a way to renormalize this, to reintroduce this. And I always tell people, whatever agency you have in your church, if you're a youth pastor, don't, don't stand up and criticize you don't have a prayerful church. Be a prayerful youth That's ministry. It. If you're a small groups pastor, be a prayerful small group ministry. Whatever agency you have, build a culture of prayer in it. God will honor it. And He's always looking for people to elevate who are free from idols and want His kingdom to be able to move out. Yeah, what an encouragement. What a perfect way for us to end in understanding the power of prayer. I mean, that's the thing. As we go into this season and these next couple of weeks, as you have a little more time or you have the maybe more control of your schedule or your itinerary, is how can prayer be just part of what you're going to do, how you're going to spend time, where it's not something we just talk about, but it's something we're dedicated to. The stories that John and Christine talked about related to our history of revival, how those revivals happened, the faithful few that were on their knees in the closet, in private, praying, that later God used to usher in revival, I think should encourage all of us. You don't have to have an influential position you don't have to you have an influential position before the father and that's what we need to be exercising. Yeah, Chris's words are so good. She said people go, "Have you built a brand? I haven't built a brand. I die daily, crucify my flesh, take up my cross and follow him and get in a prayer closet and get instructions from God." I mean, come on, girl. 
man, we've got a whole generation that knows how to market themselves, but they're not marked. If you're not marked by God in the prayer closet, you are never going to see God open doors. And what John Tyson follows with is, like, we've got to get back to making this normal. It's not weird or eccentric to go in the prayer closet and pray in a fervent way, to really desire something so passionately that you're going to linger longer in prayer. And so I think what he said is that culture in Australia was more normal, um, but here it seemed as out of context, a little out of touch. And he's like, we've got to get to a place where— if you want a church that's hungry for revival, you've got to normalize that. Yeah, and what a good inspiration for all of us. And I just want to say to you, the Q community, this family of leaders all over the world who have so faithfully for two decades now been trying to better understand our culture and trying to lead those that you're responsible for, like our moment is now. There's never been a more important moment where people are looking for a faithful leadership, people who can discern the Word of God, but also hold up the news, hold up the current issues, hold up the major questions that are going to come at us. Every month, there'll be new ones, and faithfully discern what is God asking us to do, and how's He asking you to lead? And so I want to just instill in you courage, which that's the definition of encouragement, is to put courage in you, that you're going to be needed more now than ever, and use this next week or two to start to gird yourself up, to be prepared, to be in the Word, to be bathing everything in prayer, God goes before us. He he knows how to open the right doors and open the right conversations. Our job is just to be faithful. And that's my hope for each of us. Yeah, and just know that you're not alone in this. Wherever you wherever you are, what city you're in, what state you're in, what county you're in, um, wherever you're leading, um, there's a whole community of people just like you all around this nation and around the world. And when you stand in solidarity, when you actually feel like there is a unity of spirit, the same spirit's in us that's in you, you do have more courage to stand up, to to be bold, to to say what's true because you're not alone. And sometimes yeah. the lie is that you are alone. Um, you've been sent to your room, you know, you, you're you're on yeah. house arrest or whatever. Um, but the truth is there is a whole host of people that are walking in unity. And I think we just need to remind each other of that. There is strength in numbers. So a couple of things I want you to do. One is go to Q Ideas on Instagram. That's where you can watch some of these clips. If you want to watch the entire talks, and I would highly encourage you to do this, even if you can only do it for one month, come be a part of Q Media during this time where you have a little more time at home, more time with your friends, family, kids, people home from college. Pull up this talk. Pull up the Prayer and Revival one, the the one on deconstruction in church history. Maybe it's the Tim Keller conversation or Priscilla Shire. Pull up these talks and let them stimulate amazing conversations in your home. And you can get on the Q Media platform at qideas.org, click on Media, and then you can subscribe. It's $7.99 a month. It's worth it. Take a month. Do it. Check it out. And then secondly, I want you to plan in 2021, commit to coming together. This is going to be a year where we have the opportunity to start regathering and committing to coming together. There's no replacement for that. And we will be doing our Q2021 event, April 21 and 22 in Nashville. We'll also have it virtual, but it will be in person. And we're excited to start gathering people again around the most important issues and topics that are going to be facing the church and facing us as leaders as we lead in a new season in our culture. And so our team's excited. We're planning not just for that event, but for other things that will be coming early in the year. But thank you for being a part of this family. I want to encourage you. We are praying for you, and we hope you have a restful season of Christmas as we enter into this new year. 